Un-American Activities Committee, the McCarthy Committee, the Senate Internal Securities Committee's investigations were attacked on the left for violating constitutional rights of the people they called before them. And in the sociology of it, what they were doing, I believe, is stigmatizing people as subversive. And it was a ritual. And they would call you up, and if you were named before one of those committees, in the people I looked at in Hollywood, you couldn't work at your chosen profession. It pervaded our society. You were vulnerable to suffering the same fate that the Hollywood 10 suffered. Your book, Naming Names, deals specifically with the Hollywood blacklist era, a period which is now, to sort of paraphrase uh, Jimmy Carter, is uh, ancient American history. This takes us back to the late 1940s and early 1950s. Could you talk a little bit about the context in which such committees as the House on American Activities Committee and uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy operated in? Well, after World War II, there was great distrust between the United States and the Soviet Union, some of which was manifest already during World War II in editorials in Life magazine and elsewhere. And uh, the Cold War was underway, and to take the group of people that I looked at, who were the people in Hollywood, the Un-American Activities Committee came out there it had, prior to that time, launched a series of investigations into a whole different or a variety of subjects, none of which struck pay dirt for them. But when they started looking for subversives, they all of a sudden started making the headlines. Until that time, until 47, they had been something of a laughing stock in, in the nation's press, and they weren't really taken seriously either politically or by the electorate or by the people who covered them. And when they held their Hollywood hearings, uh, the, f the first round of hearings were held in secret, they, again, the rumors about what they were doing were such that they caused a lot of laughs. For example, Ginger Rogers' mother appeared before them and she cited the fact that uh, Ginger Rogers was made to say in a movie written by Dalton Trumbo, one of the Hollywood Ten, share and share alike. Uh, that's democracy. And she used that as an example of communist content in the films. And it, it, was, it, it appeared to be a joke. There were investigations into the uh, cartoonist guild, and they were portrayed as an attempt to find out whether or not Mickey Mouse was a communist. Uh, Shirley Temple's name was on one of the lists of people who had signed something that got into trouble. Uh, one of the congressmen on the committee, when uh, one of the witnesses, I think it was Hallie Flanagan of the old National Theater, had mentioned something about Shakespeare and Christopher, and, and the question about Christopher Marlowe's role in the writing, he said, who is this Christopher Marlowe? Have we investigated him? I mean, it was, it was just from the outside of shambles. Well, shortly thereafter, Richard Nixon, who was on that committee, stumbled on the Chambers' his case, and to try to compress a great deal of history in a very sh short time. <laughs> what happened in the next few years was, domestically, there were two great spy cases, the Hiss and Rosenberg cases, which and one series of cases that were called the Smith Act cases, where the leadership of the Communist Party were persecuted, were prosecuted, and charged with uh, conspiring to advocate to teach and advocate the overthrow of the government by force and violence. And the 
equation that these trials uh, placed in the public mind, I believe, was that to be a liberal or a left liberal or a new dealer, which is what Alger Hiss was, let's put aside whether or not he stole State Department secrets that's still being argued about, but to be a left liberal, to be a new dealer, was to be a pinko, was to be a communist, was to be a spy. And that fear was exploited by what, what I think of as the internal security establishment that included Joe McCarthy, who you've mentioned, Senator McCarthy, who was the most visible demagogue, but behind the scenes, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and whose role can't be underestimated, and then a whole range of state and local investigating committees that were part of the apparatus. The President of the United States, Harry Truman, who at first treated the allegations against Hiss as, as again, as part of a comedy, he called it a red herring, shortly thereafter, for what I believe were domestic political reasons, signed an executive order that empowered the FBI to conduct loyalty security investigations of all the employees of the federal government, which fed this growing hysteria that took over the country. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union was doing things in Eastern Europe that were feeding the domestic paranoia, and there was an interaction between these two things. It appeared to be overrunning one Eastern European country after another, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, etc. Uh, the rhetoric was heating up, and by uh, 1950, 51, we were at war in Korea, and uh, the, it was called a police action, but it was a war, and officially uh, Russia wasn't fighting there, but it was portrayed in our press as a war between Soviet Union and the United States. The China had gone communist, and the Soviets had gotten the secret of the atomic bomb, whether the Rosenbergs stole it and gave it to them, or whether they developed it themselves is for purposes of our discussion beside the point. So it was against that atmosphere that the hearings that I wrote about in naming names took place. The committee then went back to Hollywood. Meanwhile, the, the ten guys they called in the first place who had refused to answer the questions that were put to them about their own political affiliations on what they called grounds of conscience had been cited for contempt of Congress. They had appealed their case. Their cases worked their way up through the courts, and by 1950-51, they were all sentenced to prison terms from six months to a year. By the time they got out, a new round of hearings started, and that's what I wrote many years about. You've written in the book's forward that whatever one thinks of the Hiss and Rosenberg trials, they followed formal indictments and took place in courts that provided at least some procedural protections. Congress cannot charge people with crimes. The Constitution specifically prohibits legislative incursion in this area. What was the legal context or precedent that informed the House Un-American Activities Committee's activities. Wasn't what they did quite new in American history? Well, I don't think it was new. I, th I think there is, you know, we have at least two themes that assert themselves throughout our history. And one is the kind of Madisonian, Jeffersonian, Tom Paine notion of free speech, the right to dissent, uh, and the right to to revolution when things get bad enough. And the other theme is the theme that ex that expressed itself in the passage of the Alien Sedition Acts. If you don't like it here, go back where you came from. And this is, historians call it nativism, whatever you want to call it, 
after the Second World War, if you don't like it here, why don't you go back to Russia, was one of the slogans that was quite popular. At the time, it's true that the committee, the Un-American Activities Committee, the McCarthy Committee, the Senate Internal Security Securities Committee's investigations were attacked on the left for violating constitutional rights of the people they called before them. And in my view, they did violate the rights of the people they called before them. However, they weren't accusing them of crimes. What they said they were doing was gathering information, which is an appropriate function of a congressional committee, in order to make judgments about what legislation was needed in order to pass legislation. And that is the legitimate function of a congressional committee. A second function of a congressional committee is to be a watchdog on the federal government. So, for example, during the Watergate scandal, you had the Irvin Committee conducting its hearings where they would call people up before it. The third function of these committees ought to be, in, a, in our democracy, to educate people on the great issues of our time, and they could argue they were educating people to the communist menace. The fact was, however, that the sociology of that transaction, rather than the law of it, is what didn't, I think, become apparent, or was not apparent at the time. People were just too involved to see what was going on. And in the sociology of it, was what they, what they were doing, I believe, is stigmatizing people as subversive. And it was a ritual. And they would call you up, and if you were named before one of those committees, in the people I looked at in Hollywood, you couldn't work at your chosen profession. That was true not only in Hollywood, however. It was true in the academic community, down to the high school and grammar school level. It was true in the scientific community. It was true in the government employment community. It, was, it pervaded our society, and it was true in much of the private enterprise sector. So the way you got to go back to work if you were tainted by one of these, before one of these committees, by being called a subversive, was to appear yourself and uh, in something that is akin to what the anthropologists identify in primitive societies as degradation ceremonies, you would have to get up there and purify yourself by denouncing your past, and then you were asked the follow-up question, which was, after being asked, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? If you answered yes to that question, the next question was, and who else was a member with you? So you then had to stigmatize and point the finger at somebody else. And if you didn't do that, you were then said to be in contempt of Congress, and you were cited, and you, su you, you were vulnerable to suffering the same fate that the Hollywood Ten suffered. And if you did do that, you, uh, you were put in the position where if you, if you did do that, you might get to go back to work. You would, in effect, play the informer, and you would force whoever it was that you named than to be put on this kind of vicious circle that you were on yourself. Yeah, in your book you, you, you term the hearings as degradation ceremonies, as you just said. What I found interesting was uh, w how you write about um, these people whose instincts would have led them to do otherwise, in fact, went ahead and named names. Could you elaborate on, on the conditions yep. under which that occurred? Well, that, uh, I mean, that is, at the time, they called the... Uh, are you now, have you ever been the $64 question? Because it was a famous quiz show, the $64 question. What you have just asked, to me, is the $64 that question. That was a rigged quiz show, too. And it turned out to be a rigged quiz show. But this show, wasn't right. a rigged question. But this is not a rigged question. It's the real question. And it's the question, in a, in a way, that caused me to write the book. Because I could not understand. I was fascinated by this period. and a lot of, And I knew kids whose parents had gotten caught up 
in it and who had been accused of having been a member of this or a member of that. I got out of high school in 1950, and it already had started at that point. So as the years went by, I read every book that was written about the Un-American Activities Committee, and I read the hearings that uh, Eric Bentley collected them in a, in a special volume called 30 Years of Treason. And uh, when I was in law school, I tried to, to study cases that involved it and stuff. And I could never understand the answer to that question. Why did these decent, talented, politically committed people, because the people who joined the Communist Party in the 1930s were people who joined, and some in, as late as the 40s for when we were allies with the Soviet Union, they're people who joined for the most part, my impression was, to fight because they thought it was the best way to fight fascism abroad, poverty and depression at home, and racism at home. Uh, many of them later decided that they had been wrong about it, and they got out, but that's why they went in the first place. And why did people like that, who had this great talent that got them these fantastic salaries that Hollywood was paying, and who uh, cared about their, their craft and their politics, why did they decide, when the chips were down, to betray those, and to go along with this peculiar test of citizenship, which, which I argue, you know, in totalitarian societies, it's okay to say it may be okay, or the norm to say the test of good citizenship is your willingness to betray a friendship, or the test of civic virtue is your willingness to uh, tell who is part of the conspiracy against the state. But in an open society, that shouldn't be the test of civic virtue, that, that loyalty is a value that ought to be cherished. And uh, so one of the things that I did uh, was to set out to talk to these people themselves. Instead of, there is a tradition on the left, and, and there probably is a similar tradition on the right, although I never studied it, on the left I've seen it, where you don't talk to the enemy. You mm -hmm. talk to each other, and then the stereotypes that you have get reinforced. And these people didn't used to be the enemy. They all used to sit around and drink coffee together and, and scotch, and they all used to go to the same party meetings together, which is how they knew each other's names. So, my interest was in going to the informers and asking them, why did you do it? Would you do it again? Do you still feel the same way about it? Is there, how do you feel about it now in the light of what happened? Could it happen again? Who do you, you know, and that kind of stuff. And I was unable to find the short answer to that question. I did find that three or four answers kept repeating themselves as I would go around. None of them is, satis is a satisfactory answer. One would be not an answer so much as a justification. I didn't give them any names they didn't already have. And of course that turned out a little bit to be wrong because when you go and look at the names you find that there are always one or two new names at least said publicly. They had a lot of names privately because they had the assistant membership chairman of the Communist Party turned out to be a police spy for the Los Angeles Police Department who was turning names over the, to the FBI, which was sharing them with the Un-American Activities Committee. So that, that's what really made it a ritual, because they were just going through this thing to get information which they already had. But once it was said publicly, then it had the it was like a burglar alarm, and uh, networks of free, freelance blacklisters took over and printed these names in things like a little booklet called Red Channels or a newsletter called Aware. And once your name got on that circuit or in certain gossip columns and stuff, then you couldn't work anymore. So it, it had that function. A second reason that was given to me was, well, I couldn't help it. 
I was a victim of the terror of the times. I, I was, uh, I, I, there's not, I, I saw nothing else I could do. And when someone says that to you, you feel a great, I mean, I felt with some of the people who said that to me, a great pity and a sense of identification and, and, a, and a humility. I don't know whether I would feel any different if I were put in that place. Although, you talk to a lot of people on the other side, and they also were in dire straits, and yet they didn't break. And so the most moving person I talked to who took that position to me was, to, and most eloquent, I think, was the late actor Lee J. Cobb, who said to me, look, he said, what I did was disgusting. He said, I have no, I can't justify it, and I would never try. It was despicable. He said, but don't think they're any better than I am. I, I said, who's they? He said, my so-called friends. He said, first of all, they weren't there when I needed them. My telephone wasn't ringing. And by, I said, what do you mean when you needed them? He said, well, he said, the committee was after me for three years. They would park in cars. There'd be two guys parked across the street. They'd go to the grocery store and tell them not to give me credit. They'd talk to my landlord. Uh, and he said, and unlike writers who could write under a pseudonym, an actor only has one face, even though Zero Mostel said, I'm, I'm the clown of a thousand faces, every one of them blacklisted. Uh, <laughs> Cobb, uh, you know, he said he, he, he couldn't do that. So eventually, his, his wife went into a, um, an institution for uh, alcohol uh, abuse. He was penniless, and he said, I'm talking about breakfast, he said. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he said, I used to think that if I'd say to them, they put, if they put me on the rack, I would say, turn the wheel another notch. You'll never break me. He said, well, he said, I broke said, now they wanted to give the eulogy at my funeral. They wanted to say he died without caving in. He said, I caved in. He said, so it doesn't make me a hero, but it doesn't make them any better than I am. And the thing who are most, the people, the people who are most judgmental about me, he said, were the people who uh, had the least to do with it, and it, it ennobles them to be able to, by identifying themselves with this great cause, he, Cobb, is is evil or is an informer or did this despicable thing? So that's a very eloquent statement in that position for me, and uh, it doesn't justify because you look at other people who are in worse straits than Lee J. Cobb, but it helps you to f to understand it. Uh, I want to ask you a question on that, and then I, then you can go ahead and give the third most common answer. You write about cocktail parties and, and uh, informal get-togethers among the people who named names and those who didn't, um, and how the, there's a, a great resentment and distrust uh, that's built up among them, between them. And then you say that Dalton Trumbull uh, brings to mind that uh, we have to remember that the people who name names are not the enemy. The enemy was the House Un-American Activities Committee. Right. And I think that's might be pretty important. Well, uh, yeah, you brought up a number of things there. I mean, he made a famous speech in uh, the late 1960s when he won the Laurel Award, which is the highest award the writers can bestow on each other out there. And he said on that occasion that for those of you who are too young to remember the blacklist, you should study it because there are lessons to be learned. But when you do, uh, you should keep in mind that it was a time of evil, that none of us was without sin. Don't look for heroes and villains. There were only victims. And it was a very moving statement, and, w and it was received as a healing 
statement by many people. It's a very generous one. But his fellow blacklistee and another member of the Ten who went to prison, same time Trumbo did, Albert Maltz, many years later, I went to see him in connection with both my book and an article I was writing, and he greeted me with a piece of paper denouncing Trumbo's statement and said that if I didn't want to use it, he was going to take it as an ad in Variety. He felt so strongly about it. It wasn't just because Trumbo said it. It had gotten picked up, and the active Robert Vaughn uh, wrote his master's thesis about the blacklist and called it Only Victims. And uh, Elia Kazan, who also had named names before the committee, as you know, the great director, had, uh, when talking about one of his novels on the radio shortly before I saw him waltz, had said one of the themes of this is that the, it's wrong to look for heroes and villains. Life is ambiguous. Uh, things aren't that simple. There are only victims. And that phrase haunted Maltz. So what he said of Trumbo was, you know, he said to Trumbo, you didn't say this at the time. At the time, you wrote a book called The Time of the Toad, and you called these people who named names, you said they ate toad meat in, in an old allegorical statement. He said, to say that, for example, Edward Dimitrik, who started out as one of the Hollywood Ten but ended up when he got out of prison of going before the committee naming names and going back to work, which the others could not do for another 10 or 15 years, uh, he said to say that Edward Dimitrik and Adrian Scott, at the time Moss mentioned Scott, he was dying of cancer and hadn't worked for the rest of his life, he said, to say that they're both equally victims is to take away the meaning of our lives. It's like saying the guard and the prisoner at the concentration camp are both equally victims. He said, what do we go to prison for if we're all equally victims? Well, that sparked an exchange of correspondence between them, which is the concrete equivalent of the argument that goes on whenever you go into a room where any of these folks are to this day. And the correspondence and Trumbo's answer was, I didn't say they're equally victims. I said they're victims, and they suffered for what they did. And the truth is, you know, they both have a point, and you, you read this thing, it's quite fascinating. I mean, my own belief is that uh, the great irony is that when someone like Kazan, who was, after all, the number one director of his day, and could have gone to where he had first refusal rights, in effect, on every... Broadway show of any seriousness. He directed Arthur Miller's prize, Pulitzer Prize-winning plays, Death of a Salesman, All My Son. He directed Tennessee Williams' plays, Streetcar Named Desire, and stuff. And he had done some Hollywood movies at that point. The Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and had just finished Zapata. He could have gone back to Broadway. Truth is, I believe when he named names before the committee, he thought eventually people would forget it. And for many people, it's the only thing they remember. And I mentioned Cyril Mustel before. Zero Mustel, whenever he was invited to a party by mutual friends, and they had a lot of mutual friends because they both came out of the old actor's studio in the group theater, and uh, uh, he'd say, is the informer here? Is Loose Lips here? And he would use that for any... He'd use it for Kazan, he'd use it for Jerome Robbins, who he worked with Robbins in Fiddler on the Roof, but he didn't... Then not a day went by that he didn't insult him, either to his face or behind his back. Kazan later went on to direct Bud Schulberg's On the Waterfront, which became uh, really the work of the entire period of informing, and it was sort of representative of the um, 
absolving of the informer and the informer as a, a patriot and someone who is really serving himself and ultimately serving his country. Could you talk a little bit about that film? Schulberg and Kazan would deny that that's what the movie was about. And their evidence that that's not what is it was about is that they based this film on a series that was written about exposing waterfront corruption in the trade union movement in New Jersey that was written in the Saturday Evening Post before uh, either of them had been call called before the committee, that they had conversations before that, and that this was the dramatization of a real-life heroic story. The trouble for me with that kind of explanation is twofold. One, historical, that uh, in fact it turns out that Arthur Miller and Kazan had been talking about making a waterfront movie and uh, Miller got as far as, as doing a draft of what it might be and Miller went the other way. Miller refused to cooperate and, and they broke off uh, over the issue of the committee. Whether they broke off over the issue of the committee on that project or not is something we don't know. Whatever the real genesis of the project, the question is what themes, either consciously or otherwise, asserted themselves. And as you uh, point out, you know, Terry Malloy, who was the, the, the fellow played by Marlon Brando, comes to maturity when he realizes it's his obligation to think on his fellow hoodlums on the waterfront. And the symbolism of the movie uh, is uh, you have those pigeons on the roof. And if you remember, after... Malloy finally decides, Malloy Brando decides he has to cooperate. This little kid, which is seen as the, the heroic thing to do, and it, he wins the girl, and everything happens the way it's supposed to happen in Hollywood as a result of his decision to inform. This little boy who had idolized him comes up and drops a dead pigeon before him and says, A pigeon for a pigeon. And what they're saying is, informing can be beautiful. There are times when you have to do it. And of course, there are times when you have to do it. And the question, the real question is, is this one of those times? And my argument would be that they stacked the cards in that movie because they made it. It was on the waterfront one of those times, but in Hollywood in 1951, it wasn't one of those times because there was no internal red menace in this country in the way that the popular culture was depicting it. To be a New Dealer was not to be a pinko, to be a communist, to be a spy. To be a communist wasn't to be a spy. To be a communist was to be either a sentimentalist or naive uh, or uh, something else, but it wasn't to be a spy. Whether or not they were spies, if they were spies, they were operating in underground units, most of which had nothing to do with the party. And we still don't know, aside from the cases that have been that have been brought, the two major ones were both are still being argued about by historians. And this great, these other great nests were never brought to trial, so it may all be a big myth. You say in your book that the social costs of the hearings and McCarthyism have yet to be computed, even though you you do mention the, the billions of dollars that have been spent in the nuclear arsenal. You also say that the real casualties were the walking wounded of the liberal left. Will the effects of the past, of this history, if it is read and understood by us today, cause sufficient reaction in your mind to um, pre prepare us or prevent us from letting something like this happen again? Well, uh, it can't do any harm to know the history of the past. And I am one of those who believes it's extremely important. There is, however, always a zone of uncertainty about how you apply the lesson of the past. 
you know, people say, all right, the lesson of Munich is that we've got to stand up to who? To Hitler or the Russians? I mean, is Hitler, are they the same thing? Now, uh, I'll give you an example of a recent debate on the left. I know where I stand on it, but I'm not sure that the lessons of the past are as clear as the people on both sides argue about. Congress recently passed, and the president signed a bill which is known colloquially as the Names of Agents bill, which makes it a crime for the first time in our history for you or me to publish or for David to say the name of an agent who it, that would reveal something that might interfere with our espionage apparatus, even if that name has appeared previously on the public record. That bill, it seems to me, is uh, not just dangerous as a precedent, but it really may come back to haunt us in a couple of years. The history of those kinds of bills are they're used first against the radical fringe, and then later somebody uh, who's a little less radical says something that upsets someone and gets used that fame. And then the chilling effect is out there, and it's very hard to as quantify that, just as it was hard to compute the cost of McCarthyism. Now, they haven't started yet to prosecute under that bill, but in advance of its passage, there was a debate on the, on the left about how to oppose it. There were two bills that were under consideration. One bill made it a crime merely to publish. The other bill required that you had reason to believe that the knowledge you were going to give was, would interfere with an ongoing intelligence operation. Both bills, in the judgment of constitutional law, students of constitutional law, scholars, were un equally unconstitutional. And both bills, in the judgment of people committed to civil liberties with heavy First Amendment dose, were undesirable. But the second bill, in the judgment of some, and maybe a majority, was less draconian than the first bill. The reading of the head counters on the Hill was that there was no question that a names of agents bill was going to pass. It wasn't. It wasn't 51 to 49. It was 91 to 9 that one of these bills was going to pass. And the question was, do you work to achieve the better bill, even though you believe both bills are unconstitutional? You're listening to Victor Navasky on Naming Names, the Hollywood Blacklist. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So the people connected with the American Civil Liberties Union and the Center for National Security Studies who have a dual function. They represent defendants in cases where their liberties are being violated, but and they bring appeals to the courts. They represent the nation in some cases. They also are lobbyists against legislation that they feel violates the Bill of Rights on behalf of legislation that they feel improves the climate for the exercise of our rights and liberties, they chose to speak against both versions of the bill 
but to work behind the scenes on behalf of the lesser evil bill. And they were meeting simultaneously with a larger group of people, some from a place called the Center for Constitutional Rights, that are more radical and less libertarian, including people like Bill Kunstler and the Ratners and others, and other groups, some of whom felt, someone used the analogy of, if a bill is unconstitutional, it's like being a little bit pregnant, you cannot then work f for its passage. And to do so merely confuses the educational process, which is the important thing, and in the long run undermines your credibility with uh, the, the constituency that's most important, which are, the, which are the rest of us who are out there. In addition, then you get down to the little nitty things, this group was meeting to exchange ideas on a weekly basis, but they had not agreed that they were going necessarily to take votes and work together. They were just meeting. And so when the ACLU people would have a meeting scheduled with the CIA to get the CIA, which was sympathetic to the lesser evil bill as it happened, to work with the people on the floor to put through the lesser evil bill, uh, they wouldn't share. They didn't share that with the larger group. The larger group felt, you guys are meeting secretly with the Central Intelligence Agency. See what this has done? And, well, that kind of argument, I mean, you know, I think ultimately it may well be that it's wrong for one organization to try to do both those things. It can't do both of them well. The trouble with that argument, with what I just said, is, as Mort Halpern will say to me, that's all very well and good for you to say, but who's doing it? There's no one else doing it. And um, this week, maybe next week, you can organize one to do it, but no one else is doing it. So I uh, you know, would have voted not to, to work for the, the lesser evil bill myself, but I don't but it's not an issue that I'm confident history has an easy uh, answer for. I don't think that you can make a one-to-one -one judgment there. I think that the ACLU made its judgment in good faith. As it turned out, it didn't do any good. They didn't get the lesser evil bill, so it looks better for the other side. But again, that's easy to say in retrospect. I think there is one thing that I think is a general lesson to be learned from the past for both the left and the kind of libertarian communities, which I make a distinction between. That is, and and for the center liberals, it seemed to me that there were a group of liberals epitomized by people like Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., and the, the uh, ADA nexus, who understood the nature of Stalinism better than those to their left, who understood the nature of McCarthyism, perhaps as well as those to their left, and yet whose response to the phenomenon of McCarthyism was destructive to their values because they abandoned those to their far left. And it, their response was better, from my point of view, than uh, William F. Buckley Jr.'s, and it was better than many who, who tried to pretend that it didn't exist but it ended up by saying that, in effect, everybody, that guilt by association is uh, an evil system, except when you're dealing with real communists, you're destroying the principle that you're supposed to be upholding. The American Civil Liberties Union itself, in those years, excluded known communists from their board of directors, kicked off Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who had been elected by their members because she was an open member of the Communist Party. That experience, it seems to me, says to me that one of the lessons 
of that period is that the center liberals in time of trouble or repression should protect rather than abandon those to their left because ultimately they'll prote be protecting the principles that they really are committed and values that they really are committed to, whatever the short-run gains or losses might be. The second lesson of the period for me is for the Marxists. The Marxists really had, or not all, not all, but the communists, start with the Communist Party, had no real faith in the freedoms encoded in the Bill of Rights. And so they used the courts and the educational process, not to educate people on the nature of our Bill of Rights, but really to uh, do something else. And they basically, I think, in some part of their genes, believed that the Constitution is a bourgeois phenomenon and it's an instrument by which the ruling class keeps peace among the masses. There were some, like one of the lawyers for the ten, a fellow named Martin Popper, who I believe is a Marxist, he would have to tell you that, but also, I believe, is committed to the First Amendment and who took the First Amendment when he appeared before uh, the committee himself and believed in, in it, but many didn't. And I think the lesson for the community of Marxists is that the civil liberties are important, and you've got to have both, and it's you've got to have democratic values as well as socialist ones, and uh, you, that maybe you can't have one without the other in resisting that kind of a, an assault on values. Ronald Reagan was the president of the Screen Actors Guild during much of the uh, McCarthy period and the HUAC period that we've been talking about. How is how was he influenced and affected by what happened? Well, you know, Reagan uh, in 1980 uh, was asked by Robert Shear, who was a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, uh, a question about what was happening in Hollywood during that time. And Reagan said, there is no such thing as a blacklist. There was no such thing as a blacklist. If there was any blacklisting, it was blacklist by communists to keep out those who didn't agree with them from their films. Whatever way in which he was influenced, he has, I don't think he's lying. In term, I don't think he's consciously lying. I think he has suppressed his knowledge of what went on, and I think he, he is reflexively doing what everybody, what the vast majority of people in the industry in those years did. They all denied that there was a blacklist. They all said they wouldn't be party to a blacklist. In f I mean, the, my joke about it is they say, there is no such thing as a blacklist. That's a rumor that's being perpetrated by people who can't get jobs because of their political uh, histories and, and commitments. In that respect, it seems to me he was a representative and is a representative figure that it's possible to go along with something and not realize what you're doing. And uh, he signed in that period a letter to, as president of the Screen Actors Guild, to Gail, um, to, to the wife of Herbert Bieberman, who was one of the Hollywood Ten. She used to play all of the, uh, the Spider-Woman in all those movies, Gail Sondergaard. And she wrote, when she was called before the committee, and asked uh, for the support of her guild to resist the committee when she was supposed to appear, and uh, and and she asked the guild to take the position in effect that if any producer refused to hire her as a result of her resistance of the uh, committee, that the guild um, 
denounced the producer, and perhaps even she didn't ask this, but my own belief is if the Guild had said, if you blacklist one of our members, none of our members will work for you, they might have broken the blacklist. In any event, he wrote back to her saying that it was a position of the executive board of the Guild that they could not tell a producer to hire an actor whose political activities were so controversial that they might interfere with the box office. And beside, besides, any patriotic American ought to cooperate with a duly authorized committee of the Congress. So uh, he went along just a few weeks ago in uh, informal conversation or in a press conference he let slip the idea that the nuclear freeze movement itself was, uh, or, the, or the leaders of the freeze movement, or the members of the freeze movement were dupes of some unnamed conspiracy. Um, the to weaken America. To weaken America. The State Department had uh, put out some papers that uh, were reflected in an article that uh, appeared in the Reader's Digest by John Barron, suggesting that... Uh, a lot of the people in on the organization of the freeze are KGB agents or dupes. Interestingly enough, John Barron was mentioned in the New York Times in the 1960s as someone who the CIA used to put out information through. So uh, who knows where the truth lies. On October 6th, there was an editorial in the Washington Post that uh, described the uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is one of the most active groups for the freeze as a Soviet front. Right, and the Women's Strike for Peace, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you were talking about the two... They, but you oh. should say they, the Post uh, followed that up with a retraction of their editorial about five days, a few days later, and, uh, and it, it, which is a... It may be an unprecedented thing for it to have done. They got so much flack on it, and it turned out, you know, they were relying on a government document, and the State Department is putting out this tripe, and that is, has echoes of some of the things that were happening in the 50s. It's not the same thing, it's different. I think there are worse things happening now than happened then, but uh, some of it is the same. When you were talking about the two bills uh, uh, that that Congress was dealing with to um, prevent people from naming names of agents, and then the debate which ensued among the left, I couldn't help but extend that into an analogy of Republicans versus Democrats. And when I say Democrats, I'm thinking mostly about the neoliberals um, who were advocating uh, leaving the corporate state to its own devices to succeed in the world and we'll just take care of everyone who's been alienated and put out of work by a huge welfare system. When you had said about the two bills that you wouldn't have supported either one, can we extend that to um, perhaps the Democrats and the neoliberals being the lesser evil in uh, the elections coming up next month and next couple of years. Can you talk about the neoliberal threat if you see it as that? Yeah, well I think you have to you have to look at each of these things case by case, okay? So, uh, and even the word neoliberal it's a very slippery one. It's used to include people like Colorado Senator Hart, uh, Senator Songus, uh, Robert Reich, uh, who was a economist uh, and political scientist who writes for the nation, the Republican elsewhere, Thoreau, another Harvard economist. Uh, and they, uh, economically, they appear to have in common a notion that not that you let private enterprise solve things by itself, but that 
private enterprise, government, and the trade unions have to work together to develop an investment policy to, um, and then some of them then say, to move us out of, oh, I read, th I think today or yesterday somewhere, um, to move us out of sunset industries like steel and into sunrise industries like high tech, and others have different views about how it should be done. The birth of the term neoliberal happened shortly after Reagan was elected, and a lot of liberal senators were knocked off. And unfortunately, it took on the appearance because a number of, of members of the Senate, Sangas being the most, I think, articulate of them, but hard a little bit, said things that sounded like, well, the Democrats have, have gotten a message from the people that we can't give real alternative ideas anymore. We have to speak in a language that they understand, meaning that Reagan and the New Right did speak in that language. So it sounded like it was a, um, th they were going to try and create some new thing in between the Kennedy updated New Deal Great Society Democratic uh, program and the Reagan right-wing Republican program. In fact, they appear economically to stand for something quite different than that. They're trying to work out a, a, uh, you know, a, an economic orientation for our time. The problem is, to me, that uh, none of the so-called neoliberals who I've heard, any more than the Kennedy Democrats, have really addressed what a writer named Alan Wolf describes in his book, America's Impasse, to be our problem, which is, which is, he says, what is economically necessary is politically impossible. And that, uh, you know, you look at the four main areas where of, of causes of consumer inflation, food, fuel, health, and housing, and each of those areas is dominated by a uh, uh, an industry, a and that with the exception of housing, which is directly tied to the um, interest rate structure. The, the way to get at those areas, whether in terms of prices, in terms of distribution, in terms of production, is uh, not through the old fiscal and monetary jiggling around, that, that you really have to restructure each of those areas, and that requires, again, you, each one has different requirements. In food, you may want to have regional co-ops. In uh, energy, you may want to have some forms of public ownership and other things. Those solutions are not within the foreseeable realm of political possibility in this country. So, uh, to me, it's very important that economists and magazines like The Nation explore those alternatives in a serious a way as we can, but when it comes to uh, vote it, pulling down the uh, lever on, on uh, November 4th, you've got to look at who's running there and make a decision. It's related to that, but that's not the only thing it's related to. So, for example, last time, uh, during the presidential election, we urged our readers to vote to stop Reagan. And what we said was that... Uh, vote your conscience where you can and against Reagan where you must. I mean, in, in other words, if you have to, if the only way you think you can stop him is by voting for Carter, vote for Carter. 
if you're in a state where in your judgment, you know, there's no there's no question. Either Carter's got it or Reagan's got it. You vote the Citizens Party or vote David McReynolds or vote the Communist Party, whatever you you want to do. But it, it wasn't the national election is not the place to um, look in talking about these questions because that's a little bit further down the road. may not be as far down the road as we all think, just as the new right helped put a president in after, um, for 16 years, being uh, a kind of an oddity that, that would pop up in magazines like National Review and Human Events and in bizarre foundations, but never really appeared to be part of the political process. All of a sudden, it it emerged, and uh, uh, it may be that the, a similar thing will happen, but we can't know that. Dave Dellinger's version of the lesser of two evils is the evil of two lessers. How would you um, assess the fact that uh, with each uh, succeeding presidential election, fewer and fewer voters are participating? And what does that augur for the future? Well, I was interested to see this time, for the first time, that the, and I haven't seen the final figures, but I know in New York the number of black and minority voters went way up in the primary, which I think is a terrific thing. And uh, I'm told that it's not just a New York phenomenon, that is, the, the primary figures are still coming in, but that it was a nationwide thing. It seems to me that when the initial analyses of the 1980 elections came in, it was portrayed as a, quote, landslide victory and as a triumph for the new right. And uh, I didn't read it that way. It seemed to me knocking off specific senators like Senator Church and, and others was a triumph for the technology that the new right had gotten hold of, being able to target single-interest constituencies through direct mail campaigns, through the Vigory uh, direct mail machine, and that's how they were able to knock off senators on issues like capital punishment and abortion. But that the Reagan victory itself, when you look at the numbers, uh, as you point out, uh, something like 49% of the people didn't vote, which means that Reagan's landslide consisted of 26% of the eligible voters. In my judgment, half of those were anti-Carter votes, and which leaves them with 13%. And in my judgment, half of those are people who like Reagan, which leaves them with about 7.5%. Now, you have 50%, 51%, 49% sitting out there who who didn't vote. And those are the young, and those are the poor, and those are the minorities, and those are the alienated. And it seems to me the challenge to the, whatever you want to call it, the progressives, the liberal left, the uh, outsiders, now is to be able to articulate a program to imagine and articulate a program that speaks to the needs of the trade union movement, people who the, the so-called hard hat uh, constituency, in terms of their own interests, and that energizes this 49% to come out, because that's really, they have an interest in common. And whether it's worker ownership, worker control, democracy in the workplace, uh, or some variant of some of the so-called neoliberals' economic program as distinguished from its foreign policy program, 
uh, no one has put it together yet. I don't believe that whoever does put it together is going to be the presidential candidate. Usually the candidate discovers ideas that other people have come up with and kind of imports them into his program and as or as with Franklin Roosevelt imports them into his post-election uh, program. So uh, how it happens, in which order, we can't know, but I think that's what has to happen. You were just listening to Victor Navasky on Naming Names, the Hollywood Blacklist. I interviewed him along with S.K. Levin of the Colorado Daily in the studios of KGNU in Boulder, Colorado. This never-before-broadcast program from the AR archives was recorded in 1982. Victor Navasky was the longtime editor and publisher of The Nation magazine. In 1982, his book Naming Names about the Hollywood Blacklist won the National Book Award. He died in January 2023 at the age of 90. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year, with supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Medea Benjamin, Noam Chomsky, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Victor Navasky on Naming Names, the Hollywood Blacklist, and for Howard Zinn's classic book, You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train, just call us. 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with the great tenor saxophonist Sonny Rollins playing the Freedom Suite. Thank you.
Thank you.